Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Optive Theology Podcast. My name is Andy Schmidt, and I am here with Pastor Nick Gibson and Nicole Kyle from High Point Church. Nicole is the worship director, right? Yes, I am. Yes, worship director at High Point Church. And so she's going to be joining us for this episode. We talk about um, biblical anthropology. We're in the biblical anthropology series. This is part two, um, where we are just going to discuss how the fall has affected our anthropology, how Genesis 3 has affected who we are as human beings. And so... Andy, I also... A lot of people on your, of your of listeners here won't know Nicole very well. Before sure. she was a worship director, she was a college ministry. Yeah. Like campus pastor. Right. And so she spent her days answering really hard questions from 18 to 23 year olds all the time. So that's kind yeah. of like a big part of her ministry background that I right. think people would want to mm-hmm. know. She's an expert in answering questions from 20, <laughs> 20 year olds. <laughs> I'm an uh, expert in saying, yeah, just wait a few years. It'll all get better. <laughs> which, which is the whole point of this podcast. So, all right. So we <clears throat> kind of ended the last one uh, part one of uh, biblical anthropology, just talking about what it meant to be an embodied person. What does it mean to be an embodied person? So now we kind of we're getting to Genesis three or kind of the fall after Genesis three. And we see that there are different types of punishments that God gives to the serpent, the man and the female, Adam and Eve. Um, and we're not going to really talk about the serpent. I mean, we could, but I don't. I don't see a point talk. I mean, maybe if we want to, if we get there, but we don't have to. I mean, do you see any point talking about that? Only that the first promise of the gospel is in that section. So yes. When yeah, I mean, when he says that the offspring of the woman would crush the serpent's head, okay. and since Christians have understood the serpent to be a personification of the devil yeah. or Satan, and therefore to stand in for sin and all that is against God, working actively as a unembodied person, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, like Satan as the serpent was him being in a quote, embodied person in a kind of way. And sure. that there, one of the sons of the seed of the woman would come in the word seed in human reproduction in virtually every society in the entire world for the entire length of the history of the world until very recently mm-hmm. was always associated with the man. The idea mm-hmm. was, is that infertility, they didn't really understand that women produced eggs what they thought is that the male produced the full seed of the human being. And then Mm. that was put upon the woman's um, fertile field, so to speak, where it would then grow into a human being. And so because of that understanding, they referred to like what came from the man as the seed, right? Mm. And the woman received it as the womb. And so to say the seed of the woman was a really strange phrase. Mm. Okay. Right. And so the idea that like a person who came from the seed that, I mean, that word, that, that sentence doesn't even make sense in the ancient context, really. Right. Okay. It's so, it's so prophetic that it's really odd. And so the idea that the seed of the woman, that is the human being that comes entirely from the woman would crush the serpent's head. Of course, the only, the only that, that people say that points ahead to a virgin birth, right? Yeah. Now that's not the only thing it can possibly ever mean, but like, as we interpret backwards from what God does in salvation history forward, you can see that's the beginning of the gospel, right? Okay. All right. Well, then we can, we'll probably get more into that as we go, but let's, I mean, I want to start with, um, I guess we would start with the first result, um, is death. And so we've talked about this in our other, in, in another podcast on hell, um, kind of about the soul and like, mm-hmm. and whether or not, 
um, the human soul is eternal or everlasting or whether after you receive Christ, you be, your soul becomes eternal or everlasting. Um, but what what is the, um, I guess, let's start with death and just talk about what the punishment of death means. I mean, what does that mean? Because it wasn't immediate death. They didn't die right away. So what does right. that mean? Right. Yeah. So I think it's important to say, so first of all, as people try to interpret the first chapters of Genesis, there is a good bit of argument over, over the context of the word day. So the more literal way to translate verse 17 in chapter two is in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. Mm -hmm. And so some people have said, because the word day is used there, it means they should have died like literally that day. Mm -hmm. But really what, what that teaches us is that the word yom in Hebrew that is translated day Mm-hmm. even in the first couple of chapters of Genesis is used to not refer to a 24 hour period. It's used to refer to a time frame, right? And so the first six days of creation, for example, are referred to in Genesis two as the day in which the Lord created the heavens and the earth. So there it means at least six days, if not six larger time periods. And then here it says, in the day you eat of it, you will die. I think mm-hmm. it's also important to recognize that if you read the context of that command carefully, the death is not necessarily judicial. It's not like, look, when you do this, I'm going to kill you. Mm-hmm. He says, when you eat of the tree, you will surely die. Meaning not just like that. The, sh- the word surely there it means that it's in, in, an inevitability, right? Mm-hmm. So if you eat from this tree, you're going to surely die. Now that doesn't necessarily mean if you eat from this tree, I'm going to kill you. Yeah. It may just as simply mean that if you eat from this tree, what's going to happen to you is going to set into motion a series of events in which the result is going to be your death, hmm. right? And we see that like pretty early, like Cain kills Abel. Mm-hmm. All, mm-hmm. That, all that is flowing out of what happens here when they eat from the tree. Right. And it also means that we see at the end of this chapter that the human beings are separated from the tree of life, so they can't eat from it and live forever, it says. Yeah. Does that make sense? Whether yeah. that means they would continually eat from it and live forever, or whether they would continue to eat from it and live forever, I don't know for sure. Yeah. And your viewpoint, like what you believe is that the soul is eternal regardless of, of this, like this isn't, this is talking about a physical death. It's not talking about a spiritual death or is it talking about a mix of both? I I don't know. I don't know the answer to that question. I mean, that's part part of the things like when Tom and I had that debate in that episode, one of the things I told Tom was not, you take one view and I take the opposite. Sure. My problem was you take a very specific view and I don't think you can get that specific an answer out of this kind of literature, which is, I don't think it's mythological in the sense that it's not historical, mm-hmm. but I think it's mythological in the sense that you're supposed to interpret it according to these like deeper meanings <clears throat> mm-hmm. as, as you know, you're part of this humanity that has worked out from this for eons. Mm-hmm. Like this is the seed of that. Yeah. Right. And so what has grown out of this event between the man and the woman eating of the fruit is death mm-hmm. everywhere in every way in everything. Yeah. Okay. A legacy of death has filled the earth. Yeah. From this rejection of God's sovereignty and rule and love and care and this mm-hmm. reversal of authority, all the things that happened in it. So, mm-hmm. and God warned them. You, know, you could say he commanded them and the command had in it a warning rather than a promise. Mm-hmm. Okay. He wasn't necessarily saying, I'm going to kill you. He's saying, look, when you eat from this, what's definitely going to be the result is you will die. You will die. And that is what happens. Okay. That's interesting. Okay. So... And then another, I mean, one of the punishments, and you have written down here, Romans 8.20, for the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope. So what does that mean? Why is this subjected to, why is creation subjected to frustration 
Um, yeah, it's important to recognize that part of what happens in the curse, curse is judicial. Yeah. Like God does curse creation. It's not 100% obvious ex- all the reasons he does it. God has lots of reasons for things that he does. One of them is, I think, a kind of punishment. Mm-hmm. I think another is, is that he changes the equation of creation so mm-hmm. that things aren't going to be easy for people who are going to do wrong. Mm-hmm. Right? Okay. I also think that he he changes the world to be the kind in which redemption works through suffering. And so a perfect creation in which people who are supposed to be the leaders of it go in and they're the main evil actors, but sure. everything goes well for them while they do it, mm-hmm. just will create unredeemable human beings because we'll just go out and devour all the goodness, right? By making creation a hard place, mm-hmm. he he takes away the ease of the development of evil in us in uh, a certain kind of way. So right. I think God has a lot of different angles he's playing here, but yeah. part of it is judicial. He is punishing them for rebelling and he's taking away some of the joy in some of the things that are most distinctive to the man and to the woman Yeah, in the creation mandate. Yeah. So it's at the heart of what they were called to do. It's the most important thing to each of them. And it, 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 it he makes the thing just not easy anymore. Yeah. You know, that creation is no longer cooperating with him. They right. were supposed to cooperate with God when they refused to cooperate with God. He said, okay, now creation isn't going to cooperate with you. And right. why don't you learn what it's like to be me? Yeah. To have a creation that won't cooperate with you. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, and and then Nicole, I got it. I, I want to move and ask you this question because mm-hmm. I think that this is like, I mean, when we're talking about what young people struggle with, I mean, this is precisely what they struggle with. I, from my perspective is the idea of original sin. So one, one of the... I mean, what we have written down is like the third effect um, of them eating the fruit is original sin or what somebody mm-hmm. would call total depravity or, or whatever you want to call right. it, which is just that, um, that every human being now from generation to generation is a sinner. We're just, that's who we are. We can't not sin. And so this seems to be such a difficult thing for young people to wrap their heads around as we, and not just young people, I guess people in general who just want to think of themselves as good people. I'm a good person. I do good things. And, uh, I guess, how do you make sense of original sin? Yeah. Um, one of the things before I get into that, that I think is, is hard right now is that I don't think we're very good at being able to hold things in tension. So like I have, I've got uh, two kids, I have a four-year-old and we talk a lot about like, he loves Spider-Man. We talk a lot about superheroes, but like, even in those conversations, he'll ask like, why was so-and-so bad? Like, why is Mm -hmm. Fisk bad? And, um, like I'm trying to even now start to have the conversation that, well, like he's not just all bad, that Mm -hmm. every person has the capacity to do good things and do bad things. And that Spider-Man is not just all good. And so I think like part of why we struggle is because we want to put ourselves in a category of I'm one of the good ones or I'm one of the bad ones. Well, we don't want to put ourselves in the bad ones category, but we want to think of ourselves as one of the good ones because Mm -hmm. it's a lot easier to think of that than to think that I do some good things and I have the capacity to do some do some terrible things. Mm -hmm. So I think that's part of the problem. Um, I think also for me, this is probably just all, a lot of this is going to come from my season of life, but like, it's just so easy to see original sin. When you look at a kid, when you look at Mm -hmm. a young child who like, even thinking to my one and a half year old, a, a lot of people talk about 
Nick, I remember this in a conversation I had with you, actually, because a lot of people will talk about like the terrible twos and how when your kid turns two, they'll just become a monster. And with my oldest, I was like, I was talking to you about it because I felt like, am I doing something wrong? Because he is not two and he is terrible. And um, you said something about, I I think you were quoting someone, but like that there's just a time when I'm going to get it wrong, but like when the devil becomes alive in someone or like when the... Do you remember this this conversation or this yeah. this quote? Yeah, I want to say it's from John Rosemond, and he just says he he's he's talking about developmental like yeah. phases in a kid's life, and before that happens, your main job is to make them feel safe and make sure they know they're loved and right. Mm-hmm. And then there's this moment where he says, you know, like the devil wakes up, but it's kind of like yeah. the sense that I can be tyrannical. Uh huh. I can reject my felt obligations of affection. That my mom clearly feels like she has for me. Instead mm-hmm. of reciprocating them, I can capitalize on them and I can control right. her. Every kid wakes up to that, like somewhere around At two some cognitively. Mm-hmm. And then they try to make you their slave. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you have to be like, nope, it doesn't right. work that way. And they have to be like, oh. And that <laughs> moment is where like that somehow wakes up in us. Yeah. So I see that like my one and a half year old, when he, like he, he's in this phase where that, that process is happening for him because when he falls and when he gets hurt, like there's nobody that he's reaching for the way that he's reaching for me and Mm -hmm. that he knows I love him and I care for him and that I am a safe place for him and I'm going to protect him and, and coddle him in his like fear or whatever just happened. And yet if I take something from him that he shouldn't have, Hmm. uh, And like he will fall to the ground and have a tantrum on the floor already. And like he wants this thing that he shouldn't have that like, Mm. like probably a a knife, like probably Mm. something dangerous. And the day you use this, you will surely die. (laughs) Yes. Right. And so like, it's just, I, I, I don't really understand how you could see that. And I'm sure there are arguments that people want to make, but I just think that they're probably too sophisticated and silly. Like, I don't understand how you can see that and think that we are not all born with sin in us or like my, the desire for my kids to hit each other. Like I I could see with my four-year-old, well, it's, it could be the way he was nurtured or the environment that he was in, that he wasn't actually born that way, but it's because of all this stuff. But I don't, I don't buy that with a one and a half year old or a one-year-old who's just like, who is that young still and yet wants to take something away from his brother or wants to hit his brother and then giggle about it. Like, it's just, there's something in us. And it, so that's, mm-hmm. well, that's can I, I got now. Okay. But I gotta, I gotta ask this because I, we need to clarify because this is something that frustrates me a lot is I don't think people disagree with their sin in us. I think they disagree with their, that we're sinners. Like, I think that those are two different things. I think one of them defines who you are and one of them is just a characteristic a of what, something that you have or whatever. Yeah, it's like a state. And I think that those are two huge differences. I think that if we don't understand who we are as defined as sinners, then then we really don't have any need for Christ. And so how can we uh, – let's start there – and I guess you guys either could talk me back from that or tell me how how we can, how people can deal with the, that fact. Because it's very difficult to go forward in biblical anthropology without understanding the baseline of 
what sin has actually done to us. It just didn't make us people who sin a little bit. It made us people who are sinners and love sin. Yeah. So there've been a number of different ways in which Christian theologians and Bible interpreters have defined original sin or indwelling sin over the years. Mm -hmm. So some believe that original sin is something that is literally passed through the seed of the man. It is like crypto biological and it is, um, it is literally part of our being. Uh, in mm. the physical sense, as embodied persons, yeah. and it's part—it's—it's it's a kind of corruption that has made its way into our physical bodies. That's one of the reasons why, for example, um, Catholic theologians argued that the virgin birth was so important. Early theologians thought that original sins with sin was uh, passed through concupiscence in the yeah. sexual act of fertility, and therefore a virgin birth was necessary, not just to mm. show that Jesus was special, but to actually break mm-hmm. the line of inherited yeah. sin in the man, Jesus Christ. Otherwise, Jesus Christ, the Christ would have had original sin and been guilty and shared in the guilt of Adam and therefore could not have been a sinless atonement, right? Yeah. So there's some, there's, there has been a lot of belief over the history of the church that um, somehow that's happened. I, I think um, there, I don't think there's ever been a scientific way to conceptualize that on possibly fairly recently with epigenetics, where we found that like events out, that we experience can affect our genetic makeup in a certain kind of way that we can carry with us and actually pass down through generations unless they're somehow stopped. Um, that science is not well understood publicly. And I think some parts of it are still speculative and I'm not sure how much of it is, um, is the kind of thing we can hang our hat on yet. But there, mm-hmm. there seems to be some real truth, this idea that like, uh, people talk about like alcoholic predispositions being passed down and whether or not that's just genetic, it's just like hardwired or whether it's like epigenetical, like your genes are reorienting themselves as they interact with your environment. And so as to pass things down, if there is something like that to epigenetics and maybe there's a macro version of epigenetics, you could imagine that some kind of event in proto history, human experience was so profound in human biology that we literally are somehow passing it down a way we don't understand at all. Mm-hmm. And it is literally original sin. And it's literally biologically part of us through yeah. some kind of epigenetical rewriting or something we don't even understand yet. I think that's possible. I think it's also possible that through our first parents, as they create the first human culture, that all human cultures are affected by it. And since we know, for example, that like children are born favoring the vocal accent of their mother. Mm-hmm. So if their mother's Australian, they come out liking Australian accents. Like we're so like preformed in some of the cultural norms that we don't even understand. It's possible that it's sort of like culturally genetic. Like it's so deep in your nurturing. So like, you know, like there's all kinds of people who have problems that we would either consider psychological problems or they're variant things in human ex- existence that we don't have a good explanation for. Right. Sure. Um, we sometimes we'll call them orientations now. Mm-hmm. So like LGBTQ orientations, people don't really know what where they come from. Yeah. There's a million, we spent so many millions of dollars in science trying to understand what quote makes people gay. We mm-hmm. just still don't know. It's probably because there's like. 20 to 70 different combinations of things that can lead to that. But we, we still don't know. Right. And so one of the problems that people face is there's some things that we are by nature that is God created us that way. Like we have the image of God. Hmm. There are other things that are so deep in our circumstantial condition that we can't distinguish them from our nature. 
Does that make sense? And yeah, so yeah. we use this word orientation to just kind of be like a catch-all, right? It's this ongoing effect that we find in ourselves that we can't explain and we don't, we don't seem to be able to change. It's just there. And I think one relatively safe way to think about original sin or indwelling sin or the flesh or the self in the bad sense, the way Jesus refers to it, that that is something that is with us that we didn't choose. And in some way, we don't really know how to change or eradicate other than by this supernatural relationship and the spiritual relationship in and with Christ. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. It's just so confusing. Go ahead, Nicole. Well, I was going to say, but that also doesn't doesn't get to the question of what's the difference? Because Andy, you're still asking, sure, we can talk about original sin, but you want to talk about what it means for us to be sinners. Yeah, it's it's so difficult for me to wrap my head around the fact that this is what everybody says is like, yeah, we're made in the image of God. I totally understand that. I get that. And we did it. And we the last podcast is what that means being an idol of God and that kind of thing. But like how... Then, then being made in the image of God has to be different than, than being, than being people like when we, when we receive Christ and Christ comes into us, then we are a new person. Like Christ makes us a new human being, but it's so confusing because if we're the image of God and Christ is God, then before we accept Christ, then what the heck are we? Are we just like a shell of the image of God or are we actually the image of God? Does that make any sense? Mm Mm-hmm. Either of you want to answer that, that'd be fine. <laughs> I'm trying to give Nicole some airspace before I dive onto it. Sure. I mean, I, if, I've, if I'm understanding what you're saying correctly, are you saying how could we be the image of God if we also have indwelling sin within us? Yeah, it doesn't make sense. Like before we're believers specifically, like before you're a believer, how can you be the idol of God if Christ is God and we don't have Christ in us? Well, then how could Adam and Eve be made in the image of God if that was before the fall? Because I do you think that they didn't have Christ indwelling in them or no? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Nick, resident theologian. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Give us the answers. I, yeah. No, I just, I think that there's, I, I mean, my understanding of it, which is a lay understanding, sure, is just that the... It w- it's broken. Not that it's not possible, but that that our we don't we're not going to be able to fully image God to the fullest capacity without Christ. But that doesn't mean that we don't bear His image and and in so doing have the worth and dignity that He intended to give all of humanity because of that. So, but would being able to bear His image be more like uh, real virtue compared to like true virtue, which we talked about? Well, I wasn't in your last podcast, but Nick, you, when you preached podcast. recently, you, I mean, you talked about this, that like we all bear the image of God, whether we like it or not, whether we want to or not, right. whether we're believers Correct. or not, that this is just, this is the decision that God has made is that he has like stamped us with his image and we belong to him. Now we don't always recognize that. Right. Even as Christians, I think there are ways that we don't honor him in that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Totally. And I think it's really important to recognize that we are not in the image of God because Christ is indwelling in us. Mm-hmm. Because Uyghurs who are being tortured by the Chinese government, sure. who are Muslims, and might openly reject Christ, still deserve to be treated with the dignity of the image of God because they bear it. Mm-hmm. Right? Atheists yeah. who disbelieve in God and don't realize they're doing so with the very faculties that they've been given yeah. by being made in the image of God are still in the image of God. 
and are using the mm-hmm. image of God to reject belief in the image of God. Right? So Nick, can I ask a question about that? Because yeah. how, how then, how then can God send his image to hell? Why? I heard a, a philosopher say recently that a question isn't an argument. Right. So like, what is the argument that that there's something wrong with that? Right. I mean, on one level, you could say, how could God, how could God not send his image to hell if that image was an open and constant rebellion against him willfully? That's true. How much greater the treason that something with so much dignity as someone bearing the image of God and being made for the purpose of being God's vice regent (laughs) in his own creation, who chooses to rebel against him and seek to supplant his rule, not be condemned in something like a hell yeah no i mean that's that's a good answer i'm just i feel like that would be the next question somebody would ask is how how then could god send something that could that ha, that ha, you know i i would assume that yeah i guess that's that's a good answer i won't go even deeper into that because there's a billion questions that we could ask about yeah that, i think but. one of the things people struggle with relative to are we sinners or do we sin right mm-hmm. is this is the idea of identity and i think it gets back to what nicole was saying that like People aren't all one thing, but I think it also gets to this con- to understanding of understanding what is true in our foundational nature, like what a human being is, what is true in our conditional nature, that is the condition that we are in as people. Mm-hmm. And then what is in our, our character based nature, the choices we will naturally make in different situations. And then the choices we make in those situations. So you can look at it at four different levels. At the most basic foundational level, we are made in the image of God mm-hmm. as embodied persons. So like if you stripped everything away that was wrong with us, but we are still yes. ourselves, you took away everything you could take away from us that wasn't truly, quote, what we were meant to be, we would still be imaged in the image of God and embodied persons. When God redeems people in the end, we won't be floating souls playing fantasy harps. We will be embodied people in resurrection bodies and a recreated earth will be embodied persons in the redeemed image of God. Okay. Mm -hmm. However, that image of God has fallen into a condition of depravity. Depravity isn't our nature. The image of God is our nature as embodied persons. These beautifully made image bearing embodied creatures have fallen into the condition of depravity, Mm. but that has affected us so deeply that we can't tell the difference between it being our nature or our condition. And so we just think of ourselves as like, you know, to err as human, right? Or like, you know, well, of course I did that bad thing. Like that's who I am. Or we speak of the orientations we find in our heart, these Mm -hmm. conditions that we have, these desires that we have that we don't understand. We say, that's just who I am. Right. Because we're not, because it's so deep in us, we have trouble distinguishing between what's our condition and what's our nature. It's also one of the reasons why Christianity is a revealed religion. Uh, right. God tells sense. us certain things that otherwise we would really struggle to know. And one of them is what's the difference between our nature and our condition. That's why some people have said, look, if God made me like totally righteous, like morally perfect, I wouldn't even really be me anymore. Cause like to err is human. Like we're imperfect. Hmm. You see that, see what's happening there. They think their condition is their nature. And that if God took away that condition, they wouldn't be themselves. Right. But nobody says that about their cancer. That if, you know, if God took away my cancer, I wouldn't be me anymore. Even when their life is totally dominated by their experience of their cancer and they don't feel like they can do anything about it. They still don't go, well, if this was taken away, I wouldn't be me. They'd be like, no, I'd be more fully me. 
Like I have a disabled son, right? I don't say that his disability is, is what he is in the foundational natural sense, but it's so much a part of his condition that it defines him almost as strongly as his condition as a human being. Yeah. And he has to live in the tension of both of those things at the same time. And so do we, but that's why it's okay for us to seek to kill the flesh in ourselves precisely because it's not us. It's our condition, not our nature. And if we can kill it in Christ, then we can actually experience more of our nature as it was meant to be, as we're more free of the thing that's destroying us. So what you're saying is that our nature, our, our nature. Okay. So the fall didn't affect our nature. It affected our condition. No, no. What I'm saying is what I'm saying is the fall. That is the, the harm that came to us is a condition. So, so imagine like you're a healthy person, right? And then you start feeling sick. And you Mm -hmm. find out you have pancreatic cancer, right? Mm -hmm. Pancreatic cancer isn't what it means to be a human being. Mm -hmm. It's a condition you, the human being, is having. Does that make sense? Yeah. And you just soon get rid of that condition. Or let's say, let's make a simpler example. You get to the end of the day and you're super tired and you're a little cranky at your wife. Yeah. She doesn't go, you're a terrible human being. She goes, you need to go to bed. Because Hopefully, condi- right? Yeah. Because you're in a, the condition of being tired and in the condition of being tired, you're also a little cranky in that condition. If you go to sleep for a while, you'll be neither of those, but you'll still be a human. Isn't that what I, isn't that what I said when I asked? It, so your identity is in that you were made in the image of God and your condition is, is the sin. Right. Okay. So that's okay. That makes sense. Yeah. I think the difference is that the condition is something that has affected you, not mm-hmm that it's like been applied to you. And wh- the reason we need a concept like original sin rather than just sins mm-hmm, mm-hmm. is because or- original sin or depravity is so deep in us that it feels like it's our nature. Mm-hmm. It's like somebody born with a condition and they've had it from birth and they can't even tell the difference. Like, like my son who was born with his physical condition. He's never experienced not having it. And yeah. so for him, it's just part of human experience. And so he would be prone to just accept, oh, this is just human experience. Now, imagine he was born into a world where every single human being had his physical deformity. Yeah. Then he would just say that everybody just go, oh, this is just what it means to be human. Yeah. Right. But it's not. It's humanity plus a broken condition. And you see what human beings have to realize before we even know how we need God is to know that we exist in a condition in which what we think is ourselves isn't just ourselves. It is a mixture of a profound, divine, beautiful, very good, original creation in the image of God, broken in times primordial into the condition of depravity. Hmm. And it's that duality yeah. that God is redeeming us from. from, from because every human being progressively, either their sinful nature that is indwelling sin will either destroy and degrade the image of God's ability to show itself through wickedness or in redemption, God will put to death indwelling sin so that the image of God can be remade, recreated and reformed so that it, it could be our all in all. So who, who and what we really yeah. are. So I guess that makes, I mean, okay, that makes more sense. I do still struggle with it in my head. Cause I'm like, man, I can just think about so many Gen Zers and millennials taking that and being like, oh, see, look, I'm not totally bad. Like I'm, I'm a, 
like you because this is what's been frustrating we've talked about this in the image of god podcast where it was like the frustrating people are like i'm a child of god god it's like i get frustrated with that and it's because there's something wrong with me but also i get frustrated with it because it seems to be a cop-out to like just a justification for anything like i'm a child of god i could do anything i want to do and that seems to be what my generation the millennials are they love to do they're just like i'm the image of god i can sin and i'm not a sinner and so i have a difficult time with like how do we then define ourselves as as human beings because it seems like some of the greater theologians of our time they didn't define themselves um as the image of god they just not like luther and calvin were more pessimistic in their in their personal anthropology i guess in their personal views of does that you know, so how should we look at ourselves? How can we be honest with ourselves about who we are? How can we do it? Yeah, how I mean, can I we th- do it? I think you have to believe both things. Because if you mm-hmm. just believe in depravity too strongly and in a way that is too overweening, mm-hmm. it, it, it'll it crush you. Right. You know, in a way that it, it doesn't need to. Like, you've got to believe that um, that you're made with an incredible amount of dignity. But the, pro- the problem is, is that if we really understand what it means to be made in the image of God... See, one, one, of the, one of the things I, that I get frustrated with when people say, well, I'm a child of God, mm-hmm. is they imagine themselves as like a one-year-old who can't do anything and has no responsibilities. That's true. Right? Yeah. And so their parents, really their parents' job is just to accept them the way they are because they're one. Yeah. The problem is, is as kids grow and be, start to become like human beings, full human beings, like in their capacity developmentally, they begin to have responsibilities, Right. Mm -hmm. And they can only really be themselves if they embrace those responsibilities that they have. Right. And so the idea that you could say, well, I'm a child of God, therefore I have no responsibilities completely misunderstands what the Bible Mm -hmm. means by sonship or being a daughter of God. Mm -hmm. To be a son or a daughter of God, the reference is to an adult child, mainly. And the idea that like you grow up into the character and responsibilities of your parent. So you are deeply beloved but also you image and are the presence of your parent and their character everywhere you go. You are your parents' perfect representation, Mm -hmm. assuming your parent is noble and you've chosen to follow in their ways. Right. But, but even just functionally, like if your dad was a blacksmith, it was most likely you were going to be a blacksmith and you were going to do what your father does. And that's what showed you to be a son. And like when God says that he's well-pleased in his son, it is both a reference to his unconditional love for his son because he is his son. But God doesn't just say, this is my beloved son. He also says, and with him, I am well pleased. Mm-hmm. And you see, that is the heart of a father over a son that's embracing their identity. Mm-hmm. That one, their identity is this, they just belong to the father. They're just his. They're his that, that person is his beloved son. But then the question is, have you grown up to image your father in the full responsibility of your humanity that you're made in the image of God? You're supposed to be taking dominion as he has taken dominion, right? Mm -hmm. Are you doing that so that you can also reckon that God is, quote, well pleased? Mm -hmm. And the two go together because if if you reject what will please God, you reject your character and you denounce your father. Yeah. Right? And that affects whether or not you really are a beloved child. But I, th- I don't disagree with that. But what I, I'm thinking here while you guys are talking about this is that in my experience, I think for the longest time, I agreed with a lot of what you're saying, Andy, where I was like, I'm a sinner. That's that's like the truest state of who I am is I'm a sinner and I've been saved by grace, but I'm, I'm a sinner. And like I found a lot more 
I was a lot more comfortable saying that than I was saying I'm a saint. Um, and while you were talking, Nick, about this idea of you have to embody what it means to be like your father, I was thinking of the prodigal son. And when he goes off and he's he's eating food with the pigs and he's like, man, I should just go back and be a, a servant in my dad's house because even the servants have it better than I have it here. Like he, yeah. it, I think there's a sense of him understanding that he's denounced his dad and that he just doesn't even think he's worthy of it. When he comes home, that's not how his dad sees him. His dad has never stopped seeing him as his son. Uh, and he says yeah. to him, my son, and he welcomes him back into his family. And so I, I think for me and my experience as a believer, what's been harder for me is to, to understand that, that there is, while I do believe I'm a sinner, I also believe that I have been redeemed and I am in now in my present state, I am God's child. Yes, with all the responsibilities of it, but I just, I, I don't know. So it's, it's interesting to hear you guys saying this because now I feel like I'm on the other side of struggling with that, where, where mm -hmm. I think there are a lot, whole lot of people who don't understand that God desires for their identity to shift mm -hmm. and to not be in see like looking horribly at themselves only and thinking that they're unworthy and not forgiving themselves of things and like holding themselves to a standard that is not actually the gospel adding things to the gospel sure. so it's i think yeah and i i ultimately i guess it's the flip side of saying what you said at the beginning nick like you've got to do both well and yeah. I, I like that you said that you said that we're like saints. Cause I think that that is another thing that I, ne I rarely ever hear. And it is, it is a little awkward to say it, but I think like, like Nick said, I think the reason why a lot of people love calling themselves children of God is because it kind of negates all responsibility, responsibility and being a saint. I mean, it seems like we got to be more responsible. Like it is, a, it just feels like a more responsible title. And so, I, I don't know. That actually is a good, I mean, just to think about that yeah. because I've struggled with the same thing. I don't, I struggle with being like, I'm a, I'm just a sinner all the time. And like, if I ever do anything good, it's because Jesus did it, which is true partially. Yeah. I mean, in some ways without revelation, I think like if you, if you look at how people think about God without revelation, usually they're going to come to one of two opinions, either a human beings displease the gods and we must do everything possible we can to earn their love or at least their propitiatory attitude that they're favorable towards us or to universalism that God, if, if God's relationship to us is gracious, it can't be destroyed. Yeah. And what this comes down to is the simply the question, can a gracious relationship be destroyed? Hmm. If somebody loves you because they love you, if, if what their gift to you of themselves is uncalculated, right? They're not calculating how they give to you. Can you destroy such a relationship? Sure. And the Christian answer is yes. And that is the strange paradox that people have such a hard time with. Because in one level, you'd think, well, if God loves us unconditionally, how could we such so destroy a relationship with him as for it to be irreparable? How could there be a hell? There can't be, therefore, universalism, right? But here's the thing. If the person who, quote, unconditionally or long-sufferingly or graciously loves you is a self, then in their love for you, they still have to love you within the parameters of their own being and character. And if you set yourself up 
in utter rejection of that character, there is no means by which they can love you and be themselves. And so therefore, even though they may have love for you, your relationship can be finally and utterly destroyed. Even though the relationship is utterly gracious, they give to you in a way that they do not calculate at all what they get from it. And they, in affection, care for you, right? Mm-hmm. You can you can reject and destroy a gracious relationship. The, the opposite, though, of that is, is, that, is the fear that the relationship isn't really gracious, Right. If there's anything I can do to destroy my relationship with God, doesn't that mean my relationship with God is based on works? Whether or not I'm a good enough person. And the answer is no. No. And the way, the easiest way to understand that is the first moment you take the least step towards God, it's enough for him. It's a, it's a question of orientation in the directional sense. And God basically says that what he wants from us is repentance. He wants us to turn around. Yeah. If you run from his face, you have your back to him. That is in wickedness. Mm-hmm. He doesn't say you have to earn my favor. He just says you have to turn around. Yeah. Right. Which is an act. Right. But it's right. It's, it's a, an act, but it's a yeah. choice. It's a, right. it's a, it's a, it's a decision about who you're going to be, what you're going to be. And will you yeah. accept him? Yeah. Right. And, and that's, that's fundamental to receiving a gracious relationship. I mean, uh, one Catholic theologian says the basic of human relations is uncalculated giving and gracious receiving. Hmm. So the giver doesn't calculate what they're going to get from it. And the receiver receives it freely and graciously and knows that it's given in an uncalculated way. And only then can there be love. Yeah. Right. What that means, what, what is faith? Faith is the gracious receiving of all that we need from God, including the death and resurrection of his Christ to save us. Hmm. Right. And so you can have a, a relationship that is of grace that can be destroyed. Therefore, universalism is false and legalism is false or moralism yeah. is false. God loves you as you are. You are his beloved child. All you have to do is face him. Hmm. But he has made you to be his child which is to image him, to mirror him, to take dominion in his name, to act like him in his own creation. That is your purpose, whether you like it or not. And mm-hmm. if you were yourself, you would like it. Yeah. You know? And so he is going to call you into that. And the problem is, is that both of those go together. You can't reject your nature and accept God. Mm-hmm. And that's what salvation and damnation comes down to. In accepting God, you must ac- accept your nature what you were made for, what your real yeah. purpose really is. And if you don't do that, you aren't accepting God. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, in yeah. every prophet in the whole Bible is about that. Mm-hmm. People, they want to say that they're gods, but they want to do everything God says not to do and not do everything he says to do. Right. And God says that doesn't work. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. I think, I think we got to shift over into, cause that, that was general, that was more of like a general how sin affects Everybody, and I think the Genesis three specifically breaks up man and woman, and it talks about how sin affects uh, both of yeah. these individually. This is where all the controversy comes in in our society right now because um, there's a lot of questions about gender and sex and all these things. And so we're going to start with what God said to Eve. Um, says, uh, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain, you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. That was the NASB 1995 
version. Uh, Thank you for clarifying. I think it's one of the best ones out there. Um, Anyways, uh, so Nicole, obviously you are a woman and it's like... Yes, I came on this podcast just so that you guys could say whatever you want about women. And then you had a woman who would just say, yeah, that's that's right. I agree. Perfect. Okay. All right. So Nick, let me start with you. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Uh, (laughs) Nicole. So I I mean, the first question you have to ask is why does God go directly to childbirth? Like why, why does he, why does the punishment have, have first off to do with, with pain and childbirth, like multiplying your pain and childbirth? Okay. I don't have an answer for that question, but I have a related question that I have been pondering for the past few years. (laughs) Okay, thanks. <laughs> um, right. I mean, I I'm sure when Nick talks about this, he'll talk about how we are saved through our childbearing and so you can give us a more theological answer, Nick. My question is about the the original language. Does pain translate to specifically like a physical pain? Is there a way oh. to distinguish that? Because as someone who has walked through infertility for a combined like seven, going on eight, going on eight, seven years, um, and just the more that I have interacted with other women who are having children or not having children, one of the things that I thought about was man, maybe this was when we had our You're miscarriage. Like actually, pain in relation to bearing children, yeah, meaning yes, both the, the emotional, pain of the physical and pain, the of course, pain of the whole thing in general. Yeah. That's a like, good question. That's I a really had never thought about that until then. Like, well, this is a very yeah. different kind of pain that I'm experiencing, wow. but this is a, this is a hundred percent related to in bringing forth children. I suppose it's, it's gotta a, be like, like 50 types of pains. Like there's, if there's, it probably right. isn't specific to pain or it's physical, but I, I don't know, but I, I suppose it has to be like r- relational pain, emotional pain, physical pain, all these different types of pains. Spiritual pain. Nick? Yeah. Nick is yeah. studying. Yeah, no, she said she wanted to know what the Hebrew meant, so I was looking yeah, at it. Yeah, I do. I oh, do want to know. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, so, f- first of all, it's, it, th- that word is only used three times in the Bible. Interesting. Hmm. So, we could do a really quick word study here, <laughs> right? In yeah. 316, it means, um, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbearing. Okay. And so it's translated pain usually there, right? Um, and then in the very next verse in 317, right? Um, in painful toil, you will eat from the earth all the days of your life. Hmm. Right? The words painful toil are a translation of just one Hebrew word, the same word. So painful okay. toil. So, um, and then in Genesis 5, 29, it says, and now he called his name Noah saying, this one will give us rest from our work and from the toil, painful toil of our hands arising from the ground, which the Lord has cursed. Right. So those are the three uses. So, so in Seems verse like 16, right. But right. Yeah. But painful toil. Um, also the lexicon says it, it's like, it can have a connotation of anxious toil. Like, huh. so in anxiety and anxiousness and pain, but it's like toilsome. So the idea is, is that this, and this is kind of interesting because you see the man and the woman are receiving the same thing in a way. Mm -hmm. Their their work has become toil. Uh, Their work has become hard, painful, anxious, and toilsome. For the woman, that's particularly the thing that is singularly of her, which is 
that she can make children. Mm-hmm. And for the man, it's the thing that he sing- singularly has preeminence in, which is the work of provision. Yeah. Because the woman is going to be spending a lot of her time, energy, and work in the bearing of the children. Right? So I know what's going to happen next. I know what's going to happen in the brains of, of people next is that why why then – and this is a cult, like this is the way that I view the culture asking this question, not the way that I ask this question. But why then is God diminishing a woman to somebody who can only bear children? Like why? Why is that? Why does it feel that way? That's not what I think, but that's what I can see people yeah. asking because it's in our society, being a mother and bearing children has has come to be some sort of negative thing. So yeah, well, I think one of the things, and Nicole already brought this up, is that in Scripture, the view is precisely the opposite. Because in scripture, the worst thing that can happen to a woman in her dominion taking is infertility. Yes. Right. Not pain in bearing children. Right. And so you could argue, I think, here that if you interpret that in the broadest possible sense, that all of that would be included in the anxious and painful toil of bringing forth children. Right. Um, but the, the idea is in the scriptures, that the thing that is the most important that women do, mm-hmm. the thing that is singular to them that nobody else can do, and that is meant to bring them joy, mm-hmm. and meant to be one of the most important parts of their life, and for humanity, is the creation of new life. And not mm-hmm. just the bearing, but the forming of the new life. Mm-hmm. So women aren't just bound to children in that they grow them in their uteruses, but they are bound to them closely in body. Both in mm-hmm. bearing them, and then ha- and then and then delivering them, and Which then I think, nursing them, and then comforting, them, and like especially in those early years of life. Which is it's interesting you say it that way, Nick, because um, this would have been like maybe inconceivable and laughable if you told somebody this in the first generations of humanity. But like you can yeah. you can do embryo adoptions, and so you can adopt an embryo and have it implanted into your uterus, and you can bear that that child in you in its that fetus and that child in your own uterus, and still not have been the one who has created it and created that life. And I'm sure that that adoptive mother feels differently about her experience than I do as an adoptive mother of my son, but it's still not the same thing. And so I, I, I just think that that, that matters. Yeah. I go think ahead, that what you were saying, Nick, that it, that it's like in, in not just the raising of the children, not, but in the creation of the children, sure. that there's something that matters there because that's, no one yeah. ever would have conceived of this then that you could yeah. someday take an embryo and grow it in some other woman's body. Hmm. Yeah. I, I think also that I don't know that the Lord would concede any, that be, because you could take technology and you could do something similar, that that means that the thing done without that technology doesn't mean what it's always meant or means in mm-hmm. nature and in creation. And I also think that there are certain things that even with these technologies, we just cannot supplant. Like when a child finds out that the even if they live, grew in the uterus of a particular woman, but the, the egg and sperm from which they were made are not the physical human beings that are standing right. in as their mother and father, it creates a hole in their heart that is ineradicable. Mm-hmm. Like when children are not raised in the close proximity to both of their genetic physical parents, it damages them. 
on the deepest possible level. And there's nothing you can do about that. Right. I mean, I, I remember Eric Hesse, Eric and Miriam Hesse, they adopted a child and they went to this pre-adoption class. And one of the first things the instructor said is um, to be adopted is to be affected by a kind of brain damage. Yeah. Because the human mind and brain and neurology is meant to bond with its physical, biological, and genetic parents. And when you interrupt that for any reason, you create a harm in the total nervous system of that child in their developmental capacities. And that's why it is a human right for every child to be born with and live with their with their biological parents. Now, we do not live in a world in which we do the right thing all the time. And then what we do is we say, okay, now that we've screwed this up, what's the next best thing we can do? Right. And what scripture teaches is that adoption is this incredibly beautiful, right. like told, very noble, incredibly virtuous action. Right. But it's because something has already failed. Right. Something catastrophic and horrible. And because the thing that failed is so horrible, the thing that seeks to heal it has to be so sacrificial and noble. That's what makes adoption so noble is because something so catastrophic has happened. Right. It's why most Catholic theologians, for example, will say in vitro fertilization is morally wrong unless you're using your own genetic material. Any act of fertility done clinically in which the child does not come into a direct relationship with its biological mother and father is morally wrong because it is the right of every child to live in immediate proximity to both their parents. It's the same reason divorce is wrong. Mm -hmm. Right. And so, um, and people don't want to accept that you say that people and they're just like, no, that can't because the implications are terrifying and, and, and horrifying in terms of guilt. And you're like, yeah, D haven't you heard the son of God had to die to redeem us as a race? Haven't you right. heard that God mm -hmm. himself had to be humiliated and tortured and thrown away like a piece of garbage, something so horrific to the divine, perfect person of Christ to save us. Did you not think that if we saw our sin for what it was, it would be beyond horrible? Hmm. That we would be tantamount, tantamount to image-bearing monsters, right? you know? So it's terrifying. Yeah. But I think it's also important, like Nicole was getting at this too, like, I think you're saying this, that like up until very recently, the idea that bearing children for women was an indignity that they had to suffer, which kept them from living their real lives that they would choose if they could. Is I mean, that is such a new and strange and unnatural concept. It's hard to even begin to talk about it. But it's so ingrained in late stage feminism that has has been poisoned by um, like the playboy lifestyle of men who have who were children but forgot their childhood. Yeah. Right. And as men and women want to pursue other things in wealth and consumption besides giving themselves to be um, used up by a new generation coming to life, mm -hmm. um, the beauty of motherhood and fatherhood has been so lost in the hearts of of the of, of our younger generations that motherhood feels like this indignity. It feels like a trap. It feels like providing life support for somebody you don't even want to help. It like we've 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 even like we've slated it in these kind of like very strange metaphors that we. We don't even realize that scripture correctly sees the having of having children as the greatest dignity of a woman's life because it is the greatest dignity of a woman's life. So there's I think there would be two right now. There's probably and you kind of just touched on it, but two types of of women listening to this. I think one would be and what we'll start with is 
One would be maybe somebody who isn't married or who struggles with infertility and they don't have children or they can't have children. Mm -hmm. And maybe they don't feel like there's a lot of hope going forward for that. And I've, I asked, I think I may have asked you this, Nick, at some point, or we might've talked about it, but just about in first Timothy when it says, you know, women will be saved through childbearing or having children and that kind Mm -hmm. of thing. And there's women who can't, and there's just women who simply cannot do that. And I think you made the point that like, well, that that scripture more directly points towards motherhood than it does towards like bearing children in the sense that if you can't have children, you can still be a spiritual mother and take care, you know, adopt a kid or like be a spiritual mother, be spiritual fathers in the in the church. Right. Mm -hmm. So. Yeah, go ahead. That's not how I would inter- how I would give an answer for that passage. I do think that is true. Like I said in my last sure. sermon to people, especially who are single and didn't have the opportunity to attempt to have children at this point in their lives or who were infertile, that there is a spiritual mothering and fathering that Jesus did as an unmarried person. Like there, that is a train of thought that is relevant. I don't think that's what First Timothy, the passage that says women will be saved through childbearing means. Okay. And I think that this gets back to Genesis 3 as well. I think what both, both of these are getting at is the the reason the woman is cursed in childbearing is not because that's the only thing women do. The reason the woman is cursed in childbearing is because that is the singular thing that only women can do. Women and men overlap wow. in virtually their entire lives. Almost anything yeah. women can do, men can do and vice versa. The overlap is enormous, yeah. but the distinctions are very significant. Mm-hmm. And there is one distinction, especially related to taking dominion under the creation mandate, which includes being fruitful and multiplying. Mm-hmm. And so there's one thing singular to the female that the male cannot share in, and that is bringing forth children from her womb and, and caring for them as a mother. And so God takes the most dignified and central thing in which creation is supposed to cooperate with the woman. And as she refuses to cooperate with God, creation now refuses to cooperate with her. And so intimate, personal, and important a thing is that. Just as we are so intimate, personal, and important to God, and we wouldn't cooperate with him. The, we, are the, we were the most intimate part of his creation to him. The closest thing, the very heart of what he was doing, and we rejected him. And the, the closest metaphor to that in a woman's life is her own womb and her own ability to bring forth children isn't cooperating with her hmm. in a way that's natural, but instead it's toilsome and anxious and hard and painful. Yeah. You know, and wor- and worst doesn't work at all. Yeah. You know? Well, I want to talk about the second type of woman. That I think I'm a, Nicole, I have a question for you about this. I think there's a lot Andy, of, young- I just want to be clear. We haven't talked about the first Timothy, but we just laid out there. Women will be saved through childbearing and did not bring that to resolution. <laughs> so do you want to bring it? Sorry. Sorry. Do you want to bring it to resolution? Yeah, I think first in First Timothy two, I think the best holistic way to translate that is Timothy has just said, basically, if you read all of First Timothy, he's basically saying that he wants men to fulfill the role of elder, which is yeah. primarily to teach and to have authority in the church, to function at, like in the husbandry of the church. Sure. And if that, and if they do that, um, w- then women aren't doing it. Yeah. So what? What is the singularly unique thing for women? What keeps, what saves them in the sense that they have as much dignity as the men? If he's just said, I don't permit a woman to be an elder, that is to teach and have authority in the church in that kind of way, then what, what gives women the full dignity? What saves them in the human enterprise? And he says, women will be saved through childbearing. There is, that is, there's only one thing men can do that women can't do in the body of the church. And that is be elders. That's it. Mm -hmm. Everything else they can do. And that's most of the life of the church. 
there's one thing in the church that men can't do, which is to create new humans to grow up into God's godly offspring. Only women can do that. Mm -hmm. And in that sense, um, men and women remain fundamentally interdependent, even though their their singularly unique roles are different, even while 95% of their lives overlap. Yeah. And are, are, are equal and interchangeable. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. All right. So, Nicole, I think that there's another group of women, though, and I think it's the the younger women, my generation, and we're seeing this more and more with younger women and these younger generations coming up who just, they don't want to have kids at all. Like, their whole thing is like, maybe when I'm 35, maybe when I'm 40, you get to that point, you probably can't have kids. And they kind of just push it off for their careers or to have fun or to do whatever they want. They don't want to be part of this patriarchy or whatever it is. What, what do you say to those, I mean, what do you say to those women who don't, who just want to reject the idea, totally reject the idea of motherhood altogether? Sometimes when I'm feeling extra salty, I tell them that, um, their greatest fear is my greatest desire that I can't very easily do, but I don't think that's a very helpful, (laughs) that's not really what I'm recommending. People say, um, I mean, I think some of it is. It's like you're just telling them that they're being selfish in a lot of ways, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think some of it is an understanding of coming under authority and trusting that God's plan is best. And I think that that has a lot of ways that we have to work it out as we grow. And I I think that especially when we're adolescents and when we're going like young people, we're, we're dealing with that and trying to sort out what it looks like to have an authority that's trustworthy. There are plenty of legitimate reasons why people don't understand how to trust authority and have a good relationship with authority. But I think that if we are going to, if, if we're talking specifically to Christian women for whom this is true, then I think we have to say, okay, well, to what end do you trust God's plan for your life and the ways that he has laid out because they are what's best for us? This may be an area where you have to submit that and surrender that to the Lord. And and um, I, and I don't think there's anything wrong with wanting to pursue an education and wanting to pursue having a career sure, yeah. because, for example, you may find yourself in a situation similar to me or one of my closest friends. She and her husband, it was like five, six years of infertility. They just a week ago adopted their son. And oh. so so now at 30, 32, she has become a mother for the first time, but she had 10 years post-college graduation where she, I think it was good that she pursued good works with her time and that she had, that she Mm -hmm. pursued an education and that she wanted to work for companies and do good work for them. Like, I, I don't think that that is a bad thing, but I think that there's the question of wanting to surrender and submit our desires to what God is asking of us. And I think that's true. There are a lot of things that I think God has laid out clearly within his revealed will of what it means to obey him and follow him. Mm-hmm. And that, and there are plenty of things in that, that a particular person may not like. For some, it's going to be being in a heterosexual relationship. For some, it's going to be not looking at pornography. For some, it's going to be motherhood. Like there are some things that we're each going to have to deal with and surrender and submit to the Lord. And I will also say that there are some that culturally there may be more pressure on you because I think that's true right now for women that there is a lot of pressure. I remember being in high school, talking to a friend of mine 
And she was like, well, what do you want to do after you graduate? And I was like, well, I want to be a stay at home mom. And she said, well, you can't do that because you have to go work so that all the other women who want to work have the right to work. And I was like, this is so stupid. Like, isn't, is, aren't you saying that women should have the right to be able to choose what they do with their time? I want to choose to be a stay at home mom. Nicole, you're the difference. You're the difference between women working and not working. If you don't work, no women will work. (laughs) Right. So I, I, I understand that there is a lot of cultural pressure in that regard for women, more than there were more pressure than there was 50 years ago, for example. But mm-hmm. I just I still think there there are plenty of things in our life that we have to surrender and submit to the authority of God and our obedience to Him, and this is one of them. Mm-hmm. And so, if it's a Christian woman who is woman who's struggling with that, then I think she has to reckon with that. Well, and wh- that's one I, thing. I, yeah. I, I also think there's a whole nother conversation about how we socialize women against, well, not just women, we socialize human beings against their nature. Because when you socialize people for work, you're socializing them for a non affection based set of relationships and outputs. Yeah. And this is true of men and women, but I think it's more destructive to the ends of women relative towards wanting to enter into a unilateral relationship of affection with a child. And so when you spend all of your time making women good little workers, and then you say to both men and women, now choose a family which is rooted in the dynamics of sacrifice and natural affection in uncalculated giving and gracious receiving – like you've spent your whole life literally putting people out of taste to that. And then you're like, here, eat this. And they're like, right. that's gross. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and then and there's a whole a- issue of consumption versus sacrifice, right? Like as children, we grow up as consumers of our parents' sacrifice. Mm-hmm. And then we are treated as little consumers and everything's marketed to us in our teenage years and preteen years. And we buy and we buy and we consume, we consume. And then we take on a huge amount of college debt. We go to college and basically become semi-alcoholics and super promiscuous with our sexuality. That's all infertile. And then all of a sudden we're supposed to one day wake up and want to just sacrifice everything and give our entire lives to another sinner and then have human beings that are probably going to be as bratty, consumption focused, mean and self self-centered as we are. Right. And who would want to torture themselves that way? Right. right? Mm-hmm. So we're out of character for it. We are the example or the illustration of what it is we'd be entering into who would want to be our parents. And then we've become little consumers. The idea that we would go from being little devourers to little producers is the last thing we would want. So, so that's part of the problem too. And as a, as a person who, for my entirety of like childhood and adolescence, wanted to be at home with children, when that happened, I still experienced the ramifications of that, that you were just describing, Nick. Like yeah. I still was like, okay, so now I just sit with this baby. I'm not accomplishing something. I'm not working on this strategic plan. I'm sitting with a child and, and Nobody's looking handing at- you a paycheck. No. You right. don't know and, what kind of promotion you're working for. Mm-hmm. You're doing everything poorly. Like Chesterton has this great section in one of his essays where he says, the, the mother usually is doing a hundred tasks at like C quality work because she has so many different tasks. Mm-hmm. Whereas the worker, the working woman does like five things at A level quality and everybody thanks her for it. Yeah. And so if you, especially if you're a woman and you've been in the workforce and you did a good job and then you go home and you're doing like way more things. And you know you're not doing them as well. If you could focus on any mm-hmm. one particular one, you'd do it so much better, right? And you're like, crap, I'm sucking at all of this. And then your kid isn't even thanking you for it. They're just crying. 
You're, right? yeah. you're yeah. like, this sucks. And the yeah, answer is, and yup. And it's also the cost of the human race existing. Right. And mm-hmm. I think that like, so there, when I'm days when I'm at home, I have to remind myself that my goal, in a, in a sense, my goal is to get to the end of the day and be exhausted at the level of sacrifice and at the level of work that I'm doing for my children. Because and the point I'm trying to make is that like, even for a woman who desires this and did desire this, I'm I'm trying to imagine the degree to which it would be even more difficult for someone who has been opposed to it and been socialized against mm-hmm. it and now is trying mm-hmm. to submit it to God. Like it's, it's yeah. not that it's going to be easy, right? but there is also a beauty in it. And I think that the more that, like the older that Luca, my oldest son gets, and the more experience I have with him, I see how all of these small little things that I do add up and make a difference in his life. Mm-hmm. And it's the most rewarding thing. Like yeah. I'm thinking of specific moments this morning that were just so rewarding because of all of the work and all of the sacrifice, but, the, but it does take that. And so yeah. I, mm-hmm. and Nick, also another thing to your point that like when you have those women in that who are socialized for work and not for motherhood, then you get into the situation that they become 35, 40, 45, and then they want to start having a family. And Uh then the only way to do that for the most part is through non-natural means. Mm -hmm. And that's not, I believe not what God intended for family. I also think it's harder on you physically. Like when you're 42 waking up in the middle of the night, it's not like when you're 24. Right. You know, Lexi and I, Lexi and I got married young. I mean, one of the reasons why, that happened is because I embraced this against my will fairly young. I believe that the idea to, to multiply, like with, to have children was something I didn't want to do, but that I knew that I should do, mm-hmm. that it was, it was sort of intrinsically wholesome. And I didn't think I wanted to be celibate my whole life. And I knew that sex was a comprehensive union that was part of the comprehensive union of marriage. So every, you get everything for everything. And I wanted, I knew I wanted that one thing. And so I was looking for a suitable person. I found a very suitable person. And so I ended up getting married pretty young, but we still were like, we still need to have kids pretty young because we wanted to have more than a couple. Cause part yeah. of it too is like, people are like, mm-hmm. well, I'll have kids when I'm 35. Okay. But like, what if it takes you 11 months to get pregnant? And then you'll, you'll have, have the first kid you'll have, months after that. And then yeah. you want to space the kids out almost a couple of years. So you wait 18 more months before yeah. you start to try to get pregnant for the second one. Mm-hmm. And before you know it, you're like, oh, I could have had three, but now I can only have two. Yeah. I'll have kid when I'm 35. Is, right. Is yeah. And yeah. Be, mm-hmm. the problem is, is that people don't reverse engineer their lives because we don't, we don't know how the 50 year old version of us is going to feel right. for most women. Even the ones highly socialized towards work are still highly family oriented after 50 or 55. Mm-hmm. And so they care less and less about their work and more and more about their families, even the ones for whom their career was everything in their twenties. And there are so many women who like grew up during second wave feminism that was kind of like, oh, women don't need men. This is stupid. And like, it's okay to be infertile and have no children. And like, there's a whole like pile of women who were like, you effing liars. Because they got mm-hmm. later in their life about the, about the time their fertility had left them was about the time they realized how much their fertility was going to mean to them. Yeah. And it was just a horrible thing. But and but there's, I mean, we, I don't want to say it's all negative though. Like there's more to it than that. Like for example, you know, human IQ is probably 10 to 15 points elastic. And the more we have spent time focusing on the education of women, which has been good, we've taken that, we've taken the human race as a whole from an IQ point that's happy with repetitive, non-creative tasks to an IQ point where we're less happy with repetitive, non-creative tasks. Mm-hmm. 
right? Like if you if you can elasticize human IQ from about let's say ninety five to one hundred and fifteen. All of a sudden, you've got a person who would have been perfectly fine just doing the dishes and washing clothes and feeling mentally okay with that to being dissatisfied with it. Mm-hmm. And so you have all these women who we have spent all this education on to maximize their IQ, their intelligence, and their capacity. And then they enter into a life stage that's highly repetitive, mm-hmm. which usually leads to either being like feeling trapped by motherhood or being so fastidious about motherhood that they're overparenting their kids in ways that are producing anxiety in their children and themselves. And it's, it's a really horrible place for women to be in. And it's one of the reasons why mothers getting together, like at churches where they can kind of agree on how to raise their kids and spend time with each other and, and, and be with other adults. Cause part of it too, is that women in, of old, meaning say, let's say 1958 and the 5,000 years before that, mostly agreed on how children should be raised. And so they didn't isolate themselves as much as modern modern mothers do. A lot of modern mothers, because they get so fastidious about exactly how their child has to be raised, they don't enter into these like more networked relationships of women where they're hanging out with and having a lot of fun with other adult women while their kids are screwing around. And I've playing also and seen... Up. I've also seen like women who only network themselves with other crazy women who want to raise their kids all in a crazy overprotective way. Like that also happens. I mean, yeah, that's true. I mean, we're we're using crazy in the small C sense here, obviously. Right. But like, (laughs) it's very easy to be like, you know, most people when they have kids, especially if they're educated and I think it's even worse if they're Christian because there's, they feel like there's so much writing on their, their kids being like great godly people. Right. You get this like hyper focus on like, so I have to pick the right parenting model and I have to do it just right. And I have to, yeah. and and you fear that any deviation from it is going to ruin your kids. Yeah. And th- that can create some really unhealthy parental behavior. And one of the things I say a lot about this is if you pick the wrong parenting model like that, it's not so much that it hurts your kid as much as it hurts your kid because it hurts you. Your marriage is worse. You are more unhappy. You think your life sucks. And then your kid feels that. And Mm -hmm. at some point, your kid realizes it's about them. And then they begin to feel that you Mm -hmm. think your life sucks because you had them. Uh, And that very thought that would mortify you and you'd be like, I would never want my kid to feel that way. They will feel that way Mm -hmm. and they will blame themselves for it. Mm -hmm. And then you'll get to, I mean, just imagine where that kind of anxiety and self-hatred will take them. Right. Well, okay. So we got to move on to this next question because we're not, that was the first half of the female section. And I think, (laughs) I I think that I I know what we're going to do is we're going to do a separate bonus podcast on just how this all interacts with, with women, like feminine um, anthropology, because there's so many questions. I mean, there's questions that were sent in um, for the high point AMA where people were asking, just you know about dominion and and authority and leadership and that's what we're going to talk about next now but AMA there's so much ask more. me anything in case you yeah. don't know as a listener right and so what um so what's next is is basically god says that the woman will desire to rule over her husband but that he will rule over her and this this is where things get like very controversial and um which is really fun for me so <laughs> i th- I, I'm excited for this because because this people hate to talk about this. They hate to hate to talk about this. So we're going to talk about it. Um, what does that mean? Okay, so to, to be clear about the translation, you said desires to have control of you, but but the 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 statement to the woman is um, is 
desire that to be, f- be your desire will husband. be for your husband, yeah. Yeah. but he will rule over you. Yeah. Right. Ah. Uh, yeah. 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 So that's why that's why it can be it can be interpreted in a few different ways. Right. Right. Um, Nicole, do you have anything you want to jump in on here? Or? Not yet. Okay. Okay. So there's there's three ways in which that's historically been translated. The first is that the that desire is like you will be so in love with your husband, like you will in a kind of like submissive, directive way, like the your attention will be on him, while his attention will be on the world that he has to work in. And you'll be very devoted to your husband. You'll be very, you'll want to be so supportive and with him and love him. And he will rule over you. That is, he will be the head of your house, the head of your sex, the, right? That's a and, consequence. Right. Well, the reason why well, I think that's a bad point. interpretation yeah. is because that, that doesn't, I mean, a woman might say that sounds like a curse, but like that, yeah, in, the, that? in the ancient world, that wouldn't have been a curse. Yeah. Right. 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 In the, in the text that we're talking about here is a curse. He's, he's saying, you're going to, you're going to suffer cursedness right so the the next interpretation is is that the the desire to have to have your you meaning her husband yeah means that she desires to control him okay right and the reason why people and one that is what it can mean but one of the reasons why it seems likely that that's what it means is because just the next chapter in genesis 4 verses 6 to 8 in verse 7 um god is talking to cain about what sin is doing in him and he's saying um Hmm. sin is crouching at your door it desires to have you, but you must rule over it or master it, right? Yeah. And so there's the same dynamic of like something wants to get hold of you, something wants to have you, something wants to control you, something wants to dominate you, but you must overcome it, right? Now, in that sense, because of the context, we know what it means is sin is trying to take control of you, but you must overmaster it. That is, you must triumph over it. In this context in chapter three, both of the parties are acting in negative ways. They're both cursed and they're both sinners, and so the woman desires to quote, have her husband, meaning control him to get control of him. And the husband will rule over her. We know that's a curse as well, right? Because remember the person most being cursed here is not the husband, but the wife, she is receiving a curse. So when it says that he will master her or rule over her, this is bad for her, hmm. right? And so it means that he's going to rule over her in the way men will, if they misuse their masculinity, which is a kind of brutality. So it doesn't mean it, it doesn't mean that it's bad for her in the sense that she won't be able to like fulfill her desire to rule over her husband. It'll be bad for her in the sense that the, 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 that he will rule over her in a way that's not good. Well, it, what it, it means that she, her desire is going to be not to trust him and to, and to work in a complementary partnership, but instead to get control, yeah. which is its own curse. Mm-hmm. Whenever mm-hmm. you're in a relationship with somebody who you're supposed to love and compliment and you're trying to control them, it's always going to be bad. Sure. But in addition to that, he's going to really resent it and hate it and he's yeah. going to fight her. Yeah. And he has strength too, right? And he's going to use it instead of to protect her to brutalize her into submission so yeah. that she will not try to control him or have yeah. control of him. And what happens is, is that you're going to create this, sub, this mutual subversive power struggle between the man and the woman when the opposite was the gift of God. The blessedness of God was the man and the woman would be in complementary union in the, the perfect support to each other, right? The woman is supposed to be the Isaiah, the helper. Mm-hmm. Now she's going to become the subverter. And that's not going to get her what she wants. It's going to get her the opposite of what she wants. And listen, ladies, <laughs> if you take the role of sub- subverter in your relationship with whatever man is in your life, particularly a husband, this is what you are going to get. 
you're going to get the opposite of what you thought you wanted. And it's going to yeah. be, t- it's going to be like a curse. So Nicole, how does that, when you hear that as obviously as a female, I, I know a lot of women don't like that. And the initial response, I mean, even when I had first read it probably years ago, it was like, what the heck is going on here? Like, it's just so weird when mm-hmm. you hear this in our culture. Now you're like, what does that even mean? It seems like God's like a sexist or something like that. So like, what, what is your, I guess, what's your take on this? Yeah, it's funny. I don't, I think my reaction is probably less God is a sexist and more like, I think culturally the, uh, there's just so many cultural tropes right now that like, Men can't do anything and, and stuff's only going to get done if women can get it done. And, mm. I, and I think that that is this like double-edged sword because I think it's the, it's this curse playing itself out in some ways, because I think that when, but I, but I think, I think when women try to do things, I think that women can and are successful at, at getting things done. Like it's something that I definitely will pride myself on, but I don't think it means that it's what's best. And so I think my take on it is, again, trying to trust that what God is saying is what's in our best interest. I have to surrender to that. Because I think like in my marriage, my husband and I would both say this, that when, when we see ourselves falling into the the cursed relationship dynamic, which our personalities could easily lend themselves towards. And I think that we could be this picture in culture of a, of an egalitarian relationship or where like, where, um, where I, I like to be a leader and, and Scott, it doesn't care if he's in charge of a bunch of people and like, he's fine with having somebody have authority over him. And I hate having any authority over me, but when we find ourselves in that dynamic, like, we just find ourselves frustrated a lot more than we do and less happy than we do when we're falling into the complementarian relationship that we believe God has designed for marriage and for our relationship with one another. Which I think does say a lot in your unique situation, Nicole, because you like literally have the like personality to take control of everything. And and the anxiety to do so. Right. And you're saying Nicole, did you say your MBTI like your Myers Briggs was the same as Hitler? Yeah. It's always leaders. Yeah. It's always, um, yeah, it's always yeah. dictators. Yeah. And Condoleezza no. Rice. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Anyway, Leaders. go on, Andy. But yeah, yeah. so I think, um, well, it's interesting to hear that from you because it's like if there were any woman ever who, any female ever who would want to rule over their husband, it would be you. I mean, that would that's you. That's your personality. We just said you're like, you know, yeah. you're, you're the Hitler type in some ways. Um, and you don't, you're telling us right now that like, that doesn't make you happy. That's like, that, that doesn't right. work. E- even when you try to do it, it doesn't work out. So like for like the 99% of other women who aren't as, as like leader oriented and, or whatever, as driven as you are, that would be confusing to hear because I know a lot of women who aren't that way, who aren't ha- your personality and they still can't stand the complementarian biblical viewpoint. They just hate right. it. I think that like yeah. for me, I, I it's don't, a, go ahead, Nick. Well, I think it's important to recognize that interpreting Genesis three, the curse this way is compatible with both complementarianism and egalitarianism. 
the idea that men and women can have a subversive relationship with each other, which curses the blessing of God's yeah. gift of the male and the female is, right. is the question is, how do you remedy it? Mm-hmm. Do you remedy it by going back to the state before the fall and recognize male headship so that men take their responsibilities and you accept your nature as male and female in such a way as to be in a complementary dance with each other? Or do you seek a kind of kind and gracious mutuality in total sameness, equality with each other mm-hmm. in full acceptance in a way in which you are not subversive to each other? So, you, so, the, the, so like the, the, yeah, that's, the curse that's is good. the same no matter what your gender ideology is, right? The question is how then how do you remedy this, right? Yeah. And that will – then your gender ideas, like what does it mean to be a man and a woman and to be a man and woman together mean becomes mm-hmm. relevant. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess it's hard for me to try and answer your question, Andy, without thinking about it through the lens of a complementarian gender ideology. Well, I mean, so then just answer it based yeah, off that. Right. I will. But, yeah. I, but I think that's good what you said, Nick. Um, I think for me, a lot of it is just experientially – I talk. I say this – I bring this up a lot when we're recording podcasts and Nick, you'll talk about like – the difference between um, an ideal of how we just wish the world were versus... Oh, I, I wrote this down in my notes to say after you got done talking. That, yeah. uh, an ideology versus a discovering your nature view of the world. Yeah. Yeah. That mm-hmm. like there's a way that we wish things were and then there's the way things are. And so you'll say things sometimes in podcasts that I just want to remind everyone who's listening. Like you're a pastor who's done so many hours of pastoral counseling. And so you just know, even if we wish it were different, this is just the way it is. And I think that for my relationship with my husband, that's some of how I have become more convinced of this, that like, as much as I wish, like, wish to never be the damsel in distress, to use like the most, uh, probably now seen as a pejorative example of this, there is something about the like the gift I think that God desires to give to women to be in the care and protection and provision of a man, whether that's your father or your husband. Because I think for for a woman who's a single woman, I would probably hold a pretty traditional view that then I think your father should still be caring for you in some of these really important ways and taking care of you. And if you don't have a good dad, hopefully there's somebody in your church who can function in that way for you. But um, as much as I love to be in charge and I love to make decisions, I receive that gift of, of knowing that someone else's, their desire is for to create an environment for me to flourish within my giftings, that I would be made to be righteous before the Lord, that they, that they are looking to not just make me flourish in my happiness, but also in my holiness, Mm. probably primarily in my holiness, hopefully primarily in my holiness. And that there is like, there is a, a burden that I think God has placed on men that I just don't, I don't have to carry to the same in the same way that men do. And when I have, um, when I really have tried to rest in that, like I feel uh, so much relief and I like, it, it really truly does feel like a gift. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that sometimes it feels like I'm, when I'm not doing that, it's like, I'm fighting this uphill battle that God mm-hmm. isn't actually asking of me, um, and going against the current in that way. 
Yeah, yeah. I think I think that's really important to talk. Yeah, I, that's I was just going to ask that next of like, what are some of the like positive rather than talking about how how negative it is and how bad it is to have to not rule over your husband or whatever like yeah. what are some of the what are some of the gifts and the positive pieces of this that women can kind of hold on to who don't want to deal who don't want to listen who who hate the idea of complementarianism but you're saying yeah. that there's so many f- like free good gifts that come out of this that you wouldn't even recognize until you tried it right yeah. Yeah. I mean, go but, ahead, Nick. Nicole, wouldn't you agree that some of it is that when women say, I'm going to try to really embody femininity in relationship to the masculine around me, like the, especially the, the person who I, I desire their love, that they, it, it signals to them to become more of a man. That it, in, in a big part of that is for them to take responsibility. Mm-hmm. And when they do that, like when they embrace responsibility beca- out of response to your femininity, like they become a better man and that's good for you in every way. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I remember being in now I, my experience in college w- was probably less like what you're describing Andy and more maybe on the extreme of complementarianism with like some of the w- really? girlfriends of mine where it was like, Oh, none of these guys are good leaders. Like how come they all suck? And won't any of them just stop playing video games and take some responsibility? Like that yeah. was more my mm-hmm. um, experience of that. But I do remember. Gosh, to, how long ago was that? Like, it's so weird. Cause it's like, years I, ago. I feel, I feel like I've heard you that. complain about that exact thing at high point church. Like the girls are like, none of these guys are good enough. And well, they complain, ah, Nick, they complain about <laughs> that. None of the, the, that none of the guys are good enough in the sense that like the guy, Oh no. Okay. I don't okay. have time to go okay. into that. That's going to be so, like a whole two hours. Here's it, what I want to say to your point, Nick. Um, Actually, there are two things I want to say. One is I remember hearing this girl, we were having this conversation and this one girl was like, listen, I bet half the guys don't lead because you never gave them an opportunity to just yeah. give yeah. them the opportunity to stop trying to take charge of these situations. Uh, especially so, in a, in a feminist world. Yeah. Like yeah. most guys, it's, it's kind of like in Madison right now, every time I meet a black person, my heart tells me to assume that they hate me. Hmm. Because of the politics of our city that like, I'm supposed to be a villain. They're supposed to have learned that I was a villain. Yeah. Therefore, they should see me as a villain and hate me. So I have to start from this point of expecting to be hated, right? Now, maybe that sounds stupid to people, but that's how I feel in my right. heart based on mm-hmm. the signals I've gotten from my society. Yeah. I think similarly for like men, the signals that they've gotten is, don't you dare presume to condescend to any woman to think <laughs> yeah. that you should lead them in any way. Dude, I, I have a personality that wants to take charge all the time, no matter what. And I think about that. It's like cross my, it crosses my mind way more than it should that like, if I like speak up right now, everybody's going to think I like hate women and I'm a sexist or something. And it's like gotten that. worse in the last 10 years because we've added to the ideology, the personal duty of activism in offense taking to a new level. Right. Especially with the way technology has accelerated that with social media. So it's not just the ideology of feminism that it's condescending to seek to lead a woman, but it's also that we've all now been taught to show our offense at that as little activists. Mm-hmm. And yep. so now everybody's like, they're not just, yeah, I just think it's so much worse now. And well, so and I think, it's all played out through like little microaggression. Like they, they, everything's right. a little microaggression. So if no, I, I speak up. I think a huge advantage to any woman who's willing to embrace femininity as part of their inherent nature 
and seek to create a space around them where their femininity is supportive to men engaging in a wholesome masculinity. Not, a, I mean, not mm-hmm. a truly toxic one, surely. Which like does a, not mean that you have to play dumb and be the girl with a right. valley girl voice and just be a, yeah, yeah. whatever. Like, I, I'm not going to do that. That is not who I am. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to walk around and let the men in my life think that I'm dumb. I've never felt that way. I'm never going to do that. But that doesn't mean that I can't support them in their manhood and in their masculinity. And that doesn't mean that I can't recognize in the proper and appropriate situations where I should defer to them and where I should show respect to them and show honor to them. Like I, I just don't want any girl... to listen and to think that that means, well, now I just have to like completely change my wardrobe and always yeah. talk like this. I have to become just less. Be... I have to become less so that they can become yes, more. That's so no, sexist. Not at all. Not That's at not all. I don't think you should. I think that would be stupid if a man ever tried to get you to do that. I think that would be stupid. So, Nicole, can you like, do you have in your mind, like, how would you just, how would you tell somebody it's not that? If somebody's like, what you're saying, Nicole, ultimately is I have to become less so that these men can become more. And you're like, That's not what it is. Mm-hmm. And they're like, well, how is that not what it is? How do I mean, how, can you tell me about a way you can affirm someone's masculinity without becoming less? It depends on what you mean by less, though, right? I mean, partly, but that, that's why I'm saying, can we make right. it concrete for people? So maybe this, maybe this will help. I have like a couple there, examples, but I want to know if you do. There are, um, there will be times when I will, um, there will be times when Scott and I are trying to come to a decision about things where I, uh, there's there's never a time where I think I can't speak my opinion here and I can't uh-huh. tell him what I think. So I will always say what I think. Usually, and maybe not rightly so, but usually in like its fullest form, I will speak mm-hmm. my mind in that. But then at the end of it, I will, when we're coming to making a decision, there are times where I will intentionally then stop speaking. And maybe Mm. he would prefer for me to just keep going because maybe it'd be easier if I could just choose what we're going to do, but I will intentionally not. And, Uh. and sometimes, and part of it is that like, I don't always have the best idea. That's just a flaw of me as a person, not me as a woman. I just always think I have the best idea. I think the three of us probably s- suffer from this ailment. It like it blows my mind when I don't have the best idea. I, mean, I can't. I, I yeah, know what you're talking like, about, though, because yes. I, it's the same way. And it's like, well, well Andrew is used yeah. to it. You married a relatively competent woman. Yes. And so oh, and right. I'm, I'm, I'm realizing that right like, now that I don't have the best idea most of the time. I it's think. Not, this is something that I think is to Scott's credit. Like he, he is not, um, he's not the person who wants to get up front and like speak in front of a large group, but man, he is such a good leader and he is, he is very strong. And I think I see that because he's married to me. Like I know I'm not saying I made him strong. I'm saying I get to see it in him because of the dynamic of our relationship that like, mm-hmm. he's the person more than anybody I know who will stand up to me and tell me when I'm wrong and tell me when I'm being pigheaded or tell me when I need to apologize to somebody like he he will anyway that's a digression scott I think scott is the he's a tim duncan leader he's oh, he, he's yes. not this what? expressive dude who's gonna yell at everybody but when he's got something to say he's gonna say it yeah, yeah. and i'm exactly. gonna listen right um, but you could you could easily imagine a scott like if you went back 10 years and you played it out different you could imagine a scott that was like browbeaten and, and like just like had trouble like saying his piece. Yeah. I mean, like, I'm sure that that's in one sense you married him partly because he would tell you the truth. But like you could imagine like if you had comported yourself differently as a woman over the last 10 years. Yeah, I would have bulldozed you, that him. His, yeah, that his 
flourishing as a man in your life would have been different and that yeah. you embracing your femininity allowed him to operate in the gifts of his masculinity in a way that has benefited you and him and your mm-hmm. children and the people mm-hmm. you come in contact with immensely. Yeah. yeah. I t- when we were first married, some of this is just family dynamic differences, but like I, I wanted to hear the ways that he disagreed with me and I invited mm-hmm. that a lot. And I think that's a way that women can do that. That like you can speak your mind, you can not become less, but then you can invite from your, if, if we're talking about your husband, you can invite their disagreement with you and you can give them the opportunity to say, this is not what I think. And you can ask for them to do that. Mm-hmm. If that isn't something that they're naturally prone to do, like that's, that's a very tangible way that I think you can not become less, but still respect them and ask for it. And then when they disagree, you just shove down everything in you that like you want to just say, but it feels so wrong. Okay. Well, you probably, if you're having an affair, you would say it feels wrong to not go Gosh, and have that affair. Yeah. Like you can't. Right. You That's can't not just a good argument. The argument that it like, yeah, it's shut, like suppressing, <laughs> right. suppressing things that you shouldn't say or do is, right. is like, up, like oppressive or something like that. Like, that's I think, think it would be just as wrong for a woman to suppress her voice. Yeah. Yeah. Too. So, yes. so like at the same time, you'd say, no, a woman is the, is there, she is there to have a voice yeah. and to be good counsel to her husband. Right. And, but then also like part of it just is. When I, so what I am a le- I, so I'm the senior pastor of church in most contexts, I mean, I'm the leader in some contexts, I'm not in some of those contexts. It's actually with that when I'm with my wife, even though I'm the head of our household, it's a domain I have trusted her with, and she mm-hmm. has developed expertise in a way that I don't. Sure. And so I switch into follower mode, even when I'm, even though I'm like the quote leader yeah. because she's leading this. Mm-hmm. And when I do that, I'll say my piece and she's like, no, we're going to do a, not B mm-hmm. and I'll submit to her. Even though if I said something, she would submit to me. I, I submit to her just because of her expertise, position, and in, in dominion in that area. Yeah. And, and the thing is, is like I, I'm not upset about it because she's in charge. And right. there's just mm-hmm. something about this real that like somebody is supposed to make the call. They're going to make the call, and then it's over emotionally in terms of resentment. It's just over. Right. Like you, there's something you get for that that is hard to calculate the benefit of. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but you got to like really practice that because I haven't seen it yeah. like r- like right now. We're just newly married and it's like sometimes you can make the decision <laughs> and whoever's decision you make that I mean, I struggle sometimes being like, yeah, but like this could have played out differently if we did it my way or something like that. Like you could play it out in your head however you want to. And so to just be able to make the decision and then to be like, all right, this emotionally shuts shuts off right now. Right. It's actually like extremely difficult to do. Yeah, but that is what, a way what, that you hinder, like if you if we're talking from a woman's perspective, if I'm going to say to Scott, I want you to make this decision, and then he does, and then I am pissy about it the rest of the day, that's right. not going to support him. That's not going to be an there to him. Yeah. That's not going to be something that encourages his masculinity at all. And so yeah. you, there are things that God asks us to do that are difficult to do. And you just have to get over that. Right. It's so weird because it's like if you if you have a pissy attitude, it's almost like like from the male's perspective, it's like, okay, we did my decision. My decision worked, but my wife still is pissed off at me and I can't. So did it not work or like did it work? I don't know if it worked or not. that, That is a key problem, because if you make a decision and it works, but now you're in discord with each other. Yeah, it didn't work. It's right. Because like. And that's one of the reasons why this a concept of headship and submission can be so important is if you can let go the balance on decisions, the balance mm-hmm. of resentment on decisions, then it did work. And one of the reasons this is important, this gets back to like looking at the world abstractly and based on ideology and activism as opposed yeah. to discovering its nature 
and living in accord with its nature based on how the world mm-hmm. actually works, reforming what doesn't have to be that way, but embracing what is the way it should be is um, the, one psychologist I really like, his name's Edwin, Edwin Friedman. And he said in one of his books, Failure of Nerve, he says, um, what people don't understand is 95% of what makes a decision correct is what you do or don't do after the decision has been made. Oh, yeah. How you commit to it and you execute it to get it done. Almost any decision can be right, but if you don't do what needs to be done after you make the decision, it fails and then it turns out to quote the wrong decision. And you can make a decision Mm -hmm. that was actually not a very good decision, but you can commit to executing it together and you'll, you'll get it done and it'll succeed. Mm-hmm. Right. And so part of the deal is, is like if somebody makes a call, oftentimes if the two of you talk together and you have two different options, they're both going to be good options. Like they're both going to be reasonable options. Right. And what matters is, is after you make the call, it's, it's more decisive, not which you picked, but that you're in Concord after you pick it. And so, so by God saying, I so. want the man to take primary responsibility and therefore have the concordant authority to make a call if one needs to be made. Two things happen. One, the man takes more responsibility, not less than the decision because it's his decision. So now he has to give his life, limb, protection and provision to after the decision has been made to make sure it becomes the right decision. And there's concord between the husband and the wife in executing the decision they've agreed upon sure. because the wife let go. She said her piece. They made her thing. There's mutual respect. Now a decision's been made. Now we're going to execute that decision. Yeah. You know what well, I mean? Yeah. So there's huge benefits in that if you accept the nature of how human beings actually relate to each other. If you get all abstract and like, like, um, ideological about it, well, it shouldn't be that way. It shouldn't be that way. Mm -hmm. Well, fine. Argue about it and resent each other and make, quote, the right decision and then self destruct your relationship, be upset and resentful towards each other and just see what happens to you. Mm -hmm. What you'll do is you'll experience the curse. I mean, why would you want that? Just because you'll be, quote, ideologically right. Right. It's not just play. It doesn't just play itself out in marriage. I don't think I think it plays itself out in leadership in general. Like you could have, you could, you could have 15 different good ideas in a group of five right. people. And if you analyze them correctly in relation to the group of people that you're with, one of the ideas might actually be better than the other 15 ideas in the sense that these five people will be able to execute one of the ideas better than they'll be able to execute the other idea because they'll all be able to agree on it in some way. Right. Yeah. Yeah. One, one example of this, I know you'll connect with this, but I'm not sure everybody will is, um, you know, you're at the end of a basketball game, you're down by one point, you're on your last possession, you go to the sideline for a timeout and your coach draws up a play you don't really believe in that much. Mm -hmm. Right. Like you think you should be getting the ball, but this other guy's supposed to get the ball. Right. But whatever he draws up, Mm -hmm. that is what's going to happen on the inbound play. And you can think whatever you want, but if you go into that play and you resent your coach instead of right. saying, I'm going to do everything I can to make this play work, right? Right. Your, that play is going to fail. Right. You half-ass the screen, or right. sorry, I don't know if I can cut, but yeah. you, you, uh, you half do the screen and then the, 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 the defender gets open, around and blocks it. The not right. clean, yep. you didn't get yeah. the seal, and so the play didn't work, but right. you could have had that offensive rebound and put it back in, but because yeah. you weren't there... No. Right. Because you wanted the shot, but you actually were going to get put back and you didn't even know it. But because you didn't play, you were busy being frustrated at the, at the decision. You end up failing in real life. And that happens in relationships and in what is being done in families. Yeah. Because people won't accept that they can't live in this subversive dynamic of the curse. And what I, and I want to be very clear, you can be an egalitarian and believe there shouldn't be headship between the man and the wife. But it, you still can reject this dynamic. You can still say, when we make a decision, we put away whoever doesn't get their way, 
We both committed to get this done because 95% of what matters is what happens after the decision and that we're in agreement with each other and we're going to fight for each other and get this done. I don't think that that's the best way. I think accepting the whole counsel of God is better. And I think that male headship is correct. But I think if you embrace all the other counsel of God, that's still much, much better. And you can avoid this dynamic of the curse, which is critical to enjoying each other and taking dominion, not being alone and taking dominion of creation. Okay, so I I feel like we have to wrap this up because Mm -hmm. we're very, very far into it. And I think what we're going to do here is split this up because we're not going to split this one up. I mean, this one will just be its own. This will be just about women and how the fall has affected women. And then I think next week, Nick and I will talk about how the fall has affected men. And we'll do these two in two different podcasts. But as we wrap it up, is there any, I mean, anything that you guys want to say to kind mm-hmm. of pull all this together? So, Nicole, go ahead. Uh, this won't pull it all together, but I do think it's important. So, if this is the curse that we experience, I mean, I think it's just important to remember that it's ongoing. And so, that means, I mean, so just how... A, a few days ago, Nick, is when you preached on this at church. Mm-hmm. I was sitting, listening, feeling convicted myself at ways that I have not been doing a good job at this, at receiving the role that I believe God has given me in my marriage. And like, it's the classic idea of I've just made it more sophisticated. So I've convinced myself it's not there. Uh. But that's not what's going on. Um, and so I, it's an ongoing struggle. I think it will be something that we will be tempted towards for the duration of our relationships, because it's, it's a curse that we experience that one day we will fully not experience. But I, it, that's just my own, like I'm, I'm feeling conviction of it from Sunday in this conversation that there are ways that I'm not doing a good job at this, that I need to continue to come back to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think on some level, every human being, even if they're not religious at all, needs to ask whether the, the dynamic between men and women is a social construct or a natural construct. Yeah. I mean, this is like, it's just a really fundamental question. Yeah. Are, are men this way because men are this way naturally in their creation in a way that they shouldn't have to apologize for? Or are men the way they are because of a social construct? And of course, the answer is mixed. But is this idea that men need to be fostered in their ability to take responsibility and to engage in leadership and to provide and protect and to have these kind of like normative roles where they know what they're doing, where we're not so focused on the similarities between men and women that men can't form a masculine identity and then run free in it in a way that benefits both men and women and their children, right? And I, I, I really believe that as much as we need to recognize the overlap between men and women, the equal value between men and women, the way male leadership can go wrong and become tyrannical, all that stuff. And some of that stuff has come from secular people pushing us to look at this more closely. I still think there's there's this whole issue of the main idea and then the idea that corrects it. And I think the main idea has to be the natural nature of male, male and female together in creation. And then the correcting idea is how has that gone wrong and how do we remedy what's gone wrong? Mm-hmm. And I think that's so important because I think that I think that it steals men's ability to be masculine and women's ability to be feminine in some of the most emotionally rewarding ways and in ways that allow them to most enjoy each other as different. We say we enjoy male and female as different, but I don't think we do as deeply as we can because I don't think we allow ourselves to become as masculine and feminine as we could be. 
And I think statistically and psycho psychologically, that's more true the younger you are. I remember uh, reading a couple different places that men tend to ask, act more naturally or even stereotypically masculine as they get older. And women tend to act more stereotypically feminine as they get older. And it's partly because they don't have to impress anybody anymore. They have their place in life and they don't have to act androgynously or live up to other people's ideologies about gender. And women can just be women and they don't have to apologize for it and vice versa. Yeah. And I think if we embrace that a lot earlier, we could form our masculinity and femininity a lot better, a lot more beautifully and we could enjoy the things that are distinctive about each other in the in the dynamics in which they function. And I, th I think we'd be a lot happier and godlier and faith would make a lot more sense. And Jesus, therefore, his redemption could be applied to our engenderedness a lot more completely. Sure. Yeah. Well, uh, Nicole, do you have anything else you want to say? No. Nope. You're good. Nick, nothing? I feel like we need to do a whole other podcast on the other passages that talk about the nature of womanhood in the Bible, like 1 Corinthians yeah. 11, 1 Timothy chapter 2 right. with some completeness. But um, but yeah, I mean, we got to stop at some point, right? Yeah, we'll do that. We will do that. And then I think, yeah, so next week we'll be on uh, how the fall affected men. And for and, that and one, I will talk the whole cover. time and you'll just affirm what I say. That's great. We do hope you're there though. It'd be great to have a woman <laughs> like being like, I don't know about that or this mm -hmm. other thing. That is true. Yeah. Cause Nicole, I think, I think like guys to want well, to talk about guys, but like, I think sometimes it's really helpful for women to hear how a man is receiving something when they talk wow. about themselves. And I think it's true for women too. I think like when we talk or, or men, when you talk about like women, what men are like, and when you go as a woman, this is how I feel when men do this. Mm -hmm. I think that's really helpful for men. Yes, I agree. So maybe mm -hmm. Nicole could join us. We'll yeah. see. Um, anyways, I think that's it for today. Um, make sure you like, subscribe, follow, share this with your friends, and we'll see you all in the next one. Goodbye.